the millennials that I'm friends with and that I see getting into management roles now, they see the world differently. Like, why would you work nine to five and then give back five to nine? Why wouldn't you blend them? Why wouldn't you build a purposeful career? Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Mike Rollins, president and CEO of Junction, a social media consultancy that for over 20 years has been advising on strategy, sustainability, and social impact for some of the world's most courageous and generative companies, nonprofits, and movements. From offices in Vancouver and Toronto, Canada, and London, Junction has served clients on five continents, helping define their purpose, plan their impact, tell their stories, and embrace accountability. As an MC, keynote speaker, entrepreneur in residence, and frequent workshop presenter, Mike regularly hosts events and conferences and teaches strategy, branding, and entrepreneurial leadership. He's happiest when hosting juicy, generative conversations with people and groups in service to life. Mike, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Great to be here. And uh, I'm looking forward to a juicy, generative conversation with you. Yeah, I know. That gives me a great, a great smile. <laughs> Your juicy, generative conversations. <laughs> So, Mike, what's the biggest problem Junction solves for its clients? We help them figure out this new imperative to have a positive social or environmental benefit. Right? A lot of companies have, have flown along for years or decades or longer, really prioritizing and centralizing the needs of the shareholder. And more and more people, including their customers and their staff and shareholders mm -hmm. and others, are calling yep. them to pay attention to other things. Those other things include yep. how well are you looking after your staff? How much, uh, how much of a footprint do you have on the environment? Um, how well are you thinking about the communities that you serve and where your staff and your employees, uh, your staff and your customers live? Right? So these broader social impact questions are kind of vexing for a lot of uh, entrepreneurs and business leaders and even boards of directors. So we step in to help them because that's where our expertise is. That's really interesting. And the company's privately held, correct? Yeah, there's just two of us that own it. It has been through, like many companies, it's been through permutations over the years. Uh, yep. So there have been different partners over the years, but today there's just two of us that run it. Yep. So, so the company was founded in 1998, correct? Yeah, that's right. And, and you joined in, in 2011. Correct. Yeah, we merged with our crosstown rival to create the company that it is today. Got it. Okay. So tell me a little bit about your journey to where you are today and, and what it was about you know, about um, Junction that had you, I mean, you were a founder of Junction and then merged with this other company. To, yeah. Tell us that story. No, I founded a different business. So, so when the guys were founding Junction in 98, I was just finishing university and I was, I ended up working for a small advertising agency that did a lot of work with retailers and restaurants, pretty small boutique sort of agency. And that firm got bought by a web development firm in 
1999, maybe early 2000, right at the height of the dot-com craziness when everybody was doing the, the land rush to the internet. And we built an interactive agency there about five years before anybody used the phrase interactive agency. And we did quite well. <laughs> right. Had some fabulous clients. And then the dot-com bust happened. Uh, and down it went in 2001 and so many rounds of layoffs. And I found myself without a job and with a young child in late 2001. Christmas was coming and there were no jobs available. So I started to talk with uh, a friend about founding a new business. And we launched a firm called Octopus in the spring of 2002. And it was based on values-based branding. So in kind of in response to the sort of shallow land rush of the dot-com period, we were wondering, how could you build something more durable? And how could you build something that was a bit more meaningful for people? Mm -hmm. uh, so we built this, this firm that did branding work, but was totally focused on using values as a base for the brand rather than a technology or a product cycle or other platforms. So uh, we built that firm. We did really well for a lot of years. Uh, fast forward to 20, 2009, I think. No, 2008. I had the opportunity to work with a nonprofit that a friend of mine had taken over. And it was strategy work and it was rebrand work. And it was fascinating because it was. I found it even more complicated than working for businesses. So they still had to generate income. They call it mm -hmm. fundraising instead of sales. And right. they still had all the overhead costs. But they were measured, their success was measured based on their social impact as well as their ability to, to turn the revenues. Um, so I decided I was going to do more and more work in that space with nonprofits, but also with social enterprises, businesses that had a, a social or environmental intention. So we did that for a few years. And then by 2011, we had competed against this crosstown rival junction a few times, and we'd won our share of bids, and they'd won their share of bids. I knew the two principals there. They were doing more sustainability strategy work and communications. And we, of course, were doing the brand work and communications. And we just decided to put the companies together. It really was uh, a, a swift decision. There were some circumstances at their end that were changing, and we were keen to grow. And so we amalgamated the two companies in the spring of 2011. Ah, very interesting. So what was, the, what was your employee count prior to that? And what was it after when you did that? We were, I think we were eight in Octopus. And I think they were about six or seven in Junction. So, and, and they had purposefully shrunk. Uh, 2010, we had the Olympics in Vancouver and they hibernated their business during the games. Uh, so they'd gone from about 20 down to about six or seven. Uh, and then we joined forces, we're um, 12, 14, but the two principals in Junction moved to New Delhi in India and opened an office there. And we very aggressively and quickly grew that presence. Uh, that ended up being, I think it was 21 or 22 staff there, plus the two principals. And then we had a handful of people in Vancouver and a handful of people in London and the UK by this point. So we were total of about 35. Um, the Great India Adventure didn't entirely go our way. We did some amazing work, um, but around about 2015, it was pretty clear that we needed to close that office. Uh, so we shrank again. The two original partners in Junction left, uh, and we were left with uh, me in Vancouver and my current business partner in London. And we shrunk at that point to about 10 people. Uh, and today we're sitting at about, uh, well, I think if you look at our website, there's probably 22, 23 people, but a lot right, of them are right. contractors and part-time. Mm -hmm. So we're probably more like 16 FTEs. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
but it's a nice size. We can do some meaningful work and we can get our arms around the team and we can all get together in a room from time to time. So it's it's really nice having this uh, small but mighty team at the moment. Right. So tell me a little bit about how how you go about finding your prospects. I mean, are you doing inbound marketing, outbound marketing, referrals? I, I think it is always true that your best source of new clients is your past clients, but that presumes that you're doing a really good job serving your past right. clients. So we right. take our project management work really, really seriously. We hire people that have really strong subject matter expertise, uh, and we take those relationships with our clients really seriously. We're a mantra of putting relationships first. So we get we get a lot of referrals. There's a really good sort of inbound engine based on the referrals that we get, and we can kind of trust that to let us grow the business about ten to fifteen percent a year. But we're being more proactive than that. And so our proactive effort, we've, we've focused in a couple of spaces where we want to have more impact. One of those spaces is with international consumer goods companies. Uh, so we purposefully use the word international. We have worked with some multinationals, but what we're really interested in is companies that are growing and are already in multiple national markets. And there are some complexities there that we're comfortable with. We're in international business ourselves. Um, and we believe that the sustainability questions get more interesting when you're in international business. So that's one space where we're, we're sort of pushing. And the other space where we're pushing is in what I'll call social finance. So there are banks and there are uh, investors, venture capitalists or private equity firms. There are insurance companies. All of them hold these, these pools of capital that they're interested to move into social purpose or environmental sustainability. And we want to be part of that conversation. We figure the more we can move the money into that thinking, then the more work there will be in that space. So those are the two places where we're sort of proactively marketing uh, and we're having some good success. So we're growing at a much faster rate than that 10% right now. That's terrific. Uh, what's, I mean, are there, is there a competitive nature to your business? Are there other companies doing what you're doing? Yeah, there are other companies that do parts of what we do. I think we're interesting because we offer a lot of services for such a small firm. So we do strategy and planning work and we do communications work and we do organizational culture work and we do a lot of impact measurement and reporting work. And there's companies that do one or two of those things. It's pretty unusual to find all of that in one house in a firm our size. Um, so because we've been able to build that expertise, we've got a bit of an advantage compared to firms of similar size. Um, but, but fundamentally, I think um, we kind of take a different view of competition. Uh, we collaborate with those competitors as often as we compete with them. Mm -hmm. uh, and we believe that there's more than enough business for all of us out there. Right. There's lots of work to be done, particularly on the sustainability file. Mm -hmm. um, so what if we just show up and collaborate and work together and share practices? Well, it turns out that's helped us grow the business as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So what would you say are the biggest challenges that you're facing with Injunction right now? And is that the same thing as what the industry would be experiencing? Yeah. So I think there's, I think there's a couple of things. One, the classic growing pains. I think at, at our current size, 12 full-time people and then another 10 part-time people, 
everybody's still doing multiple roles. Uh, so people feel a bit stretched, right? Um, particularly leadership, but everybody to a degree feels a bit stretched. We all like to be able to focus on the thing that we're best at. So we can kind of see a path to that, but it's, it's heavy going to get to the point of scale where we've got the ability for each of us to specialize. Um, so that's, that's one challenge. I think that's pretty common to businesses our size. The other challenge is actually maintaining the strength of that proactive sales pipeline. Right. Yeah. So we know we're going to get the referral business and we can kind of count on it. In fact, I got a request for a proposal yesterday from a, a client that's keen to do the next piece of work. Um, the, the challenge is really um, building an efficient, I'll call it a sales engine. Um, so building the efficiency to drive more business for us to actually hit our, our pretty ambitious growth goals. Um, and so, so that we haven't, we haven't paid a ton of attention to being really aggressively, ambitiously, or as we like to use it, audaciously ambitious with our um, growth plans until the last couple of years. Uh, I think we've really figured out some some valuable propositions for the market and feel like the market is talking about social purpose and social impact and people seem to be waking up to the climate emergency. So now's the time for us to really be a bit more ambitious. Um, and we're sort of building building the plane as we fly it, as it were, uh, as we design that sales function. And I think some of our competitors are probably better at the sort of marketing to sales to to conversion process than we are. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's a big challenge for us, and we're working on it pretty actively. Yeah. Do you have? I mean, do you have people that are designated salespeople? It's the principles. It's me and my business partner. Like, it seems like everybody wants to meet and work with us. So that's that's a bit yeah. of a trap. It's a bit of a bind. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and we're trying to empower a couple of other senior people to participate in a lot of those conversations. But it's often Adam and me that get invited to speak and get, you know, Adam's chairing a conference in Berlin in November. I'm off to Toronto to speak a uh, week after next. Um, so it's us that get most of the invitations. Yeah, that makes for a that makes for a pretty busy time. Do you have an uh, what you would define as an ideal client? Yeah, I, th- I think there's a couple. I think it probably depends on which sector we're in. Um, but the ideal client as a person is probably somebody that um, understands the complexities of environmental and, and social impact, uh, and is looking for support to find the right answers for their organization. And every organization is a little different, right? So it's never it's never a one size fits all. Um, but the ideal profile is is probably somebody in the C suite, so they've got the authority to make some decisions, or at least they're mm-hmm. at the table to make the right decisions. Mm-hmm. Occasionally, it's a board member. Occasionally, it's a, a, a sort of a bold senior leader. But more often than not, it's somebody in the C suite, probably the CEO, um, and they're they're really keen to uh, take up a social purpose, operationalize a social purpose. Um, take responsibility for their environmental footprint and manage it downward uh, and take some responsibility for the the footprint that they have in community and and how they engage uh, staff as well as customers. So it's really that sort of um, that enlightened leader that usually hires us. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, Mike, would you know, there's been a lot of uh, talk in our country um, about you know, they've made it political, like ESG is bad, <laughs> you know, right. um, I'm wondering, yeah, it's kind of a crazy are you, ex- debate, isn't it? well, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't get it, frankly. I, 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 I don't know. I, mm. I don't know if it's because they don't want people making better decisions. I think, you know, companies, 
what occurs to me is that, you know, companies have customers, let's, you know, say your B, typical B2C, right? And those customers demand certain things of their clients. I mean, there's, there's companies I will not patronize <laughs> because sure. of how they do business yep. <laughs> or who they do business with. And, sure you know, and, and I think smart companies are the ones that are saying, you know what, this is a majority of our customers. We should probably be paying attention to this. And then, you know, some idiot in politics makes it a political issue. Um, right. Are you, are you experiencing that in Canada as well? And, and um, you know, where does most of your business come from? When you, and I, you know, you said your partner's in London, but you know, are you doing most of your business in Canada? Over here, yeah, yeah. So we serve clients in the U.S. We, t- we serve them from here, um, mm-hmm. but we support a number of clients in the U.S. We have clients mm-hmm. across Canada, and then from London, we serve clients in Europe and in Scandinavia. Right. So right. we're sort right. of across the English-speaking world for the most part. Um, we're uh, we're not finding the arguments about ESG to be as vehement here in Canada, but yeah, we're probably me. catching up. Yeah, um, some of the the framing and positioning of ESG. Um, has been, it's sort of set up in opposition to the, the, the old Chicago school of thought from Milton Friedman from the 70s and 80s, where um, a group of people just felt that it, the role of the business was to provide profits to the shareholder. And then it was the shareholder's sort of social obligation to go and do good with that money, right? So philanthropy wasn't ignored, but it wasn't the business's responsibility. So there's this curious dichotomy between profit making and philanthropy. Um, yes. and I think the world's more complicated than that, and I think most I agree. people agree. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've got, you know, there's a there's a fantastic academic uh, woman called Dr. Victoria Hearth who works out of the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and she's been talking a lot about social purpose businesses and establishing standards for how we actually define what a social purpose business is. And she said in a talk a couple of months ago that. Um, there's three ways that companies react to the climate crisis. Uh, the first type puts their head in the sand, just pretends <laughs> Pretend it's not, it's not happening. They're yeah, right, just doing yeah. business as usual. Mm-hmm. Right? We can name a bunch of those companies. We know who those are. They're probably the ones that you won't shop with. They're the ones that I won't shop with. Uh, but there's something rational about that, right? They're just going to kick the can. They're going to wait till the regulators tell them to do different. Uh, and that's unfortunate because there's evidence that the second and third group of companies are performing better. So the second group of companies she frames as those with enlightened self-interest. So they're recognizing that through the operations of their business, they're having negative side effects, right? So they may be generating a profit for shareholders, but they might have an outsized environmental footprint. They're spewing more carbon. They're using more water. um, They're producing more waste. Uh, or they might have negative social impacts, right? They may be reliant on on really cheap labor. Um, they may be um, they may not be sourcing labor from the community where their customers are, right? Um, so how so those companies sort of notice that eh, there's probably some things we could be doing for the community where we have our head office. Maybe mm-hmm. we should take responsibility for some of those things and kind of hold off the. PR critique that we might get. Maybe we should be hiring more diversely so that we can hold off the HR risk that we're exposed to. Maybe we should be thinking a little bit more about our supply chains so we can hold off the the customer uh, risk that might be in there. So they're they're taking responsibility for risks that are pretty foreseeable based on Mm -hmm. the negative Mm -hmm. footprint that they Mm -hmm. have. Mm 
And I think those are the ESG companies for the most part. There's lots of really good companies that are working hard on sustainability. Mm. They're thinking about their environmental footprint. They're making decisions well, paying attention to their social impacts. And there's evidence that those companies perform better. And then the third type of company is what she calls the social purpose company. And these are companies that, have, yes, they recognize that they have negative impacts, but they're determined to use the business as to contribute to positive solutions to bigger issues, right? So as she defines the social purpose company, it is a company that makes an optimal strategic contribution to the long-term well-being of people and planet. So optimal, meaning it's optimized for the size and capacity of the organization. We don't expect one company to solve climate change. Strategic in that it's embedded in the most senior decision-making and the design of the enterprise. And contribution, recognizing that if every organization contributes, then maybe we can solve for some of these big issues. Um, But it's it's contributing to long-term well-being. And those are the social purpose companies. And again, there is evidence that those outperform their peers in their industry. But there's also something like 45% of consumers now consider themselves to be purpose-driven. And they're making their consumption choices based on the reputations of the businesses that they're buying from. So like you, they're looking away from some brands and towards the brands that are exhibiting better behaviors. And then, of course, we run into the issue of greenwashing. Uh, So there's lots of accusations, and we see it every day in the news, that companies are saying one thing, but they're over-exaggerating the climate impact. So they're over-exaggerating their their sustainability performance and their social impact. Carbon offsets. And I I think there are companies (laughs) that kind of do that on purpose, Yeah, but I think they're few and far between. I think more often it's uh, it's really ambitious leaders that want to do something impactful, and they're maybe talking about the things that they aspire to do rather than the things they actually have done. I think a lot of greenwashing happens by accident, um, but that doesn't mean that it isn't a problem because there's a, that makes it really easy for critics that don't like ESG to point the finger at those that are greenwashing. So we have to we have to manage that. But I think most of it happens by accident. I think companies are largely well intended, and I think even in the bad companies, if we can call them that, there are good people that are just stuck in broken systems and they're trying to do good things. So sometimes we want to work with those, the entrepreneur that's trying to make things better. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can't, I couldn't agree more. You know, I, I really feel like, um, uh, you know, I, 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 there was a bunch of stock I inherited from my father when he passed and a lot of it was just, I mean, like, you know, Philip Morris, I'm like, really, do I need stock in a company that's killing people? Right. So there were, there was other, there were other things. And I sat down with my broker and I said, we have to get rid of all this. I said, there has to be a place to put this money with companies that aren't killing people and destroying the environment. Did you find it? Were you, were you you able to work with your broker and find the right place? Yeah, he was. I mean, he, they, they don't just do, you know, they don't just do, you know, your typical, you know, wealth management stuff they do. You know, he says, he says, we couldn't, we couldn't survive if we didn't do impact investing <laughs> for our clients. They demand it. Right. Yeah. And right? I think that's but, but my father's, but that generation didn't. Right. He didn't care. He just cared that, you know, he was making all this money off of his stock. I'm like, there's gotta be, I mean, I think he sold everything, but one thing, one thing he made me keep. For right. a while, I don't remember what it was, but yeah. you know, well, I mean, I'm, I'm sure eventually I'll get rid of it. 
Yeah, um, you imply something interesting there that I think is a as a, a generational shift in thinking. Mm-hmm. So yes, my parents' generation sounds like your parents' generation. Um, they worked nine to five and then they gave back five to nine, right? And giving back was the the framing that they used, right? I've I've taken my piece, I've taken my wealth through my well, hard effort. Thank you very much. I worked very hard through my career, but now that I've accumulated this excess, I'm going to give back, and that's what that's what philanthropy looked like. But today. Um, and I think as a Gen Xer, I'm in, in between these two worlds, but the millennials that I'm friends mm-hmm. with and that I see getting into management roles now, mm. is it, they see the world differently. Like, why would you work nine to five and then give back five to nine? Why wouldn't you blend them? Why wouldn't you build a purposeful career that is more meaningful and makes a meaningful contribution in the community? So their insistence about colliding those things and integrating those things um and they think about there's a there's a bank here that does that for years was using the um the sort of catch line on their ads do you know where your money sleeps at night so when you know you've put your deposits in the bank how is that money being invested right. is, is your bank or credit union investing it in a place where you'd like to see your money go to work or are they investing right. it in places that you would never buy from well I, I mean that's a really great point i mean you know people don't think of that right and i think one of the most the most common examples that everyone can understand when you explain it is insurance carriers, yeah. right? And let's let's just talk about the property and casualty insurers, right? I mean, that industry has been around for hundreds of years, literally, and has, you know, figuratively more money than God, right? I mean, right. they just have so much money, it's obscene. And they, you know, they're, 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 they have something called a combined ratio. And basically it's what's paid out versus what's taken in. Right. And they look for a number that's under one. Right. Which means they're making a profit. Yeah. But what's not included in that in the combined ratio are there is the actual money they invest. That's completely right. separate. So whatever they take to invest, the question is, is where are they investing it? Right. And that's exactly what you're saying. So, you know, where is that company that I'm doing business? Where are they investing all the money that they're making from people? The zillions of dollars. Yeah, so there's a there's a controversy this week. Apple has produced this absolutely incredible video in place of their sustainability report. The beautifully mm. shot, incredibly well written video. Well, that doesn't it's like surprise a two me. minute commercial yeah. for Apple. Mm-hmm. The CEO is in it. Uh, for folks who haven't seen it, I won't. I, I won't. I, I haven't seen it. So yeah, um, mm-hmm. th- there's a very famous actor in it, um, and it's really well done. And, uh, and it touts their sustainability claims and they're doing some amazing work. Like I think every, I think every laptop you can buy now the the case is made with recycled aluminum. So they're reclaiming the, the materials. Um, they're, they're going to sell an Apple watch soon. It'll be their first carbon neutral, uh, product. Uh, they have ambitions and they're on track. I think every product in their suite will be carbon neutral by 2030. So it's so pretty impressive. And as soon as it was released, the critics come out of the woodwork. And, and but what about the slave the labor question. in China? <laughs> what about the labor practices? What about the uh, anti-competitive practices? Mm-hmm. What about where they're investing all those profits? Like the billions mm-hmm. and billions of dollars of profits right. they generate. Well, where is that? Where is that capital sitting? What is that driving? And what impact does that have? And they don't yet have to report on that. They will soon, but they don't yet. Um, so it's it's complicated work, right? Which is why it's so appealing to us. The complexities are are significant. Mm-hmm. Um, people 
I think, as I said before, people generally want to do the right thing, but it's hard to figure out what the right thing is when there's 12 different priorities and you can only afford to do three of them. So how do you decide? Um, And we just try to show up with the expertise and with a a sort of a really compassionate approach that's about helping people do well. Uh, It's the second time today I've used a Maya Angelou quote, um, do, do, uh, uh, do, do your best. And when you know better, do better. Right. So recognizing that we're all doing our best. And as we learn, we'll do even better. Right. There'll be continuous improvement. Well, yeah. And of course, you know, I, I, I blame marketing for, for a lot of this, right. You know, everybody wants to present a panacea. Right. And guess what? There isn't one. And I think if companies, you know, and and this, I mean, the work that I do with clients, I'm like, you just need to be straight with people. No one's expecting you to be perfect all the time. No. And I think if you were just straight with people and said, look, this is what we're doing. We're really proud of it. But this is where we still have to go. Yeah. Because I think there are, unfortunately, those critics are out there to say, so Apple, where are you investing all those billions in profits? And oh, so Apple, what about the slave labor in China and those horrible places? Right. Because they refuse to bring that back to the United States. Right. And they're not the wrong questions. Right. But a, a smart right. Apple, and they probably will. I haven't looked at the mm-hmm. reports yet. I just saw the video. Yeah. But they're, they're probably reporting on that stuff. They're a smart mm-hmm. company and they're certainly yeah. well equipped. Um, no years ago, my, my business partner um, wrote the sustainability report for Adidas. Um, and, you know, big multinational company. They source products from all over the world. Um, and in the first sustainability report that they published, they did exactly what you've just said. They said, they, they have, here are all the countries where we work. Here are all the issues. Um, here's where we're doing well. Here's where we'd like to do better. Here's where we're not doing well and we might be a little bit stuck. They were just quite transparent about it. And then sure enough, in the next year's report, they've been able to move the needle on some things and we're able to share that with stakeholders, right? Shareholders and other interested parties. And I think that's the that's the trick. Like, yes, we need to continue to do better. Um, but let's let's pat ourselves on the back a little bit for the things that we've done well. And then recognize that there is a lot of urgency to to moving quickly because this climate emergency is real. Like we're starting to see really significant effects. And a lot of this sustainability work is is contributing to um, well, hopefully it's contributing to mitigating those effects, but certainly changing the way companies behave is really, really important because their footprint is so big. Right. So as you mentioned earlier, you've got about 22 employees, uh, yeah. about half that are, you know, ha- almost half are, are full-time, uh, about half or full, a little over half are full-time. And um, tell me a little bit about your talent strategy, um, you know, why you've chosen to stay with about 50% contractors. Do you see that changing, bringing any of those on full-time? Why, why not? Yeah. So, so the talent strategy is um, really aligned to our service strategy. So I said, we, we do a lot of strategy and planning work and we do a lot of impact measurements and reporting work. And then we do sort of communications and culture work. And I'd say that the, the first two are fairly mature parts of our business. We're very, very good at those. We have a lot of great case studies. And the third one is developing. Uh, so we know that we're going to need to bring people in that are stronger on the communications and culture and leadership development and team development work, right? So that's going to drive some of our um, recruitment on the consulting services. Um, there's really three parts to our business. There's the, the part that gets the work, there's the part that delivers the work, and then there's the part that manages the back office. So it's a pretty simple business. Um, the part that manages the back office is for us a, quite a small team. 
right? It's sort of one and a half people. Um, and, <laughs> and that will grow over time. So we know when right. we need to backfill that, but it grows based on the growth of the client services team. Of course. And the client service team grows based on how much business is coming our way. So it's sort of dependent on the sales team. So I think we're going to see some increase in our client services team and probably some more investment in, in how we're generating new business and generating sales. So we're going to see more investment in marketing. That might mean some more people. Some more investment in sales. That might mean some more people. So our talent strategy really follows the organizational growth strategy. Um, the mix of folks is interesting because there are, I can think of two people that we have that are contractors to us um, by their choice. So their their life circumstance is such that it is better for them to be contractors. Uh, right. They may have other clients, the unrelated business that they're mm -hmm. doing, they're spending part of their time delivering, or they may be, they may be only available half the time and they don't want a part-time job. They just want to contract for that time. So those are the, both people that I'm thinking of are people that we would happily employ. They don't want to be employees. They want to be contractors and that's fine, right? We can work with that. And then there are others where there's sort of a particular narrow expertise that we couldn't bring on full-time but we know that we want that expertise available on sort of a contract basis. So they may be people that work with us on a project by project kind of basis. Mm -hmm. And then there are others where they have an expertise that, that we do need, but just for a slim part of the time. So they're rather than being on a project by project basis, it's just some hours per month that they work. Um, so we're, it, it's interesting just being able to be flexible about those employment models so that people can control a little bit of their, you know, we've got moms that are coming back from parental leave or we've got um, moms that lead busy families and they only can afford to work with us 20 or 25 hours a week because they're managing so many other things in their home um, and, and in all sorts of other situations. Uh, and we just, we try to be flexible. That's one of the things that we've tried yeah. to do with the business to make it more compelling and make it a place that people want to stay. Um, and I think we've been pretty successful at that. People tend to stay with us for quite a while. Which is great. And, and so, so it, 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 what I'm wondering is if I'm hearing, and maybe I'm just making this up, <laughs> that, you know, the people you'd be hap happy to bring on full time, but they can't work full time for you for whatever reason. If you found a need to have, to need somebody for full time, would you go out and find another part time contractor? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. To avoid getting rid of the person that's working for you part-time that you need full-time. Yeah. 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 Got it. That's great to hear. Yeah. Because they're, I mean, they're, yes, they're a part-time contractor, but we behave as if they were an employee, right? They are just as loyal mm -hmm. to us. And so we're just as loyal to them. And there's a great relationship in both of those cases. And they offer something really valuable to the business. So we think of them as a part-time employee. Um, and, and they are technically not right. Like there are, there are lots of legal constraints on people that are contractors versus employees. And we, we respect all of that and manage all of that. Um, and they, they have other clients and they, their relationship is structured differently than it would be if they were a part-time employee. Um, but we can, we right. can manage that within the way we manage our projects and the way we, um, manage relationship with clients. Yeah. So, Mike, as a as a CEO, if you look back over your sure. career, where would you say? And, and I know there's more. There's more than we have the time to talk about. But what are you know some of the mistakes? One or two of the mistakes that you have made. What was the impact? What were the impact? What was the impact of those mistakes or that mistake? 
And what'd you do to fix it? So this uh, mistakes are funny, right? Because um, again, you rarely do things um, for silly reasons. Um, so right. we we went into that expansion into India with like big hearts and big courage and lots and lots of excitement. Um, we went all in. So every time I tell this story, I get the the image of James Bond in Casino Royale pushing all the chips across the table. We went all in on this growth yeah, in India. Yeah. <laughs> really bold, really right. ambitious, and and fairly high mm-hmm. risk. Um, and it didn't work out. And some of the reasons it didn't work out were um, just situational, circumstantial. But one of the reasons that it didn't work out was uh, I think we underestimated pretty badly our ability to operate a company that works across 12 time zones. So we had, you know, we have maybe 60 or 70 projects on the go at any one time. And we we're sort of managing resources on a spreadsheet. Um, we needed somebody mm-hmm. who was a, a director or VP of operations and we didn't have that person. And we underestimated the value of that skill set. Mm-hmm. Had we had them, things may mm-hmm. have turned out differently. Um, but, uh, there's a, there's a great line that I'm hearing used a lot lately. We got over our skis and what it means is like, if you're a skier and you lean too far forward, you go, oh, you're going to have a crash. Well, we got over our skis you're gonna, you're gonna get and, uh, and it didn't right. work out. So we yeah. didn't have enough resilience in the system to weather a couple of sharp downturns. Mm-hmm. So 2015, we had to close that mm-hmm. business. And that was, that was really tough. And it took us, because we'd gone all in, there was a bunch of debt associated with mm-hmm. it. So it took a couple of years for us to come out of that. Um, so that was the, the impact was it took us a couple of years to come out of that. Um, there, there were fortunately no really negative impacts on people because of those 22 employees, we found jobs for 21 of them. Um, and it would have been 22, except that person had already given notice they were expecting and they were going off on parental leave. So we, we, we did the right thing by our people. We mm-hmm. managed the debt, um, and what we did differently was really turn our attention to planning very, very carefully what growth would look like as we go into the phase that we're in now, where we're we're a bit more ambitiously scaling the business. So I think that was it was a mistake from the standpoint of how we implemented it, but I would never call it a mistake to go to India and do the great work that we did. Right, that expansion was fantastic. We just underestimated how difficult it was going to be. Interesting. So you do a lot of uh, board and nonprofit work. Yeah. Um, say a little bit about some of the work that you do, and is all the is, is the board work you do for nonprofits? Almost all. Yeah. Or I, I sit for, on one company yeah. board. Yeah. Um, and it's another services business, and they're a bit bigger than we are, and they're um, they probably do double or triple the revenues that we do. So that that's an interesting board for me to sit on because I learn a lot. Right, and I can sort of see mm-hmm. our path based on where they're going. But the the I'm now down to just one nonprofit board that I sit on. I'm the co-chair of a board of a retreat center on the west coast of Canada here called Hollyhock, and mm-hmm. it's a seasonal retreat mm-hmm. center. It's open April to October, and we host about a hundred different programs. And a lot of those programs are related to the work that I do. So I sort of feel a um, feel like Hollyhock and this other firm whose board I sit on, ORS and Junction, our firm is one big body of work. Um, so that, that sort of mm. makes it work. Um, but the nonprofit work is, is uh, sitting on nonprofit boards is tricky for a number of reasons. Um, there's accountability for board members can be tricky because they're volunteering, right? They're not paid to be there. Um, so accountability can be really tricky. Um, 
they're also lay people for the most part. They're probably not trained board members. They're probably there because they care about the organization or the issue that the organization exists to solve. Um, so they're not really great at governance for the most part. They're not really good at sort of holding the the stance that a director needs to hold, which is a bit more arm's length and a bit more objective and far more strategic. Um, and so managing the conversations that happen on nonprofit boards can be really tricky for a chair, uh, especially one that understands how a really well-run, well-trained board can operate and how powerful that can be and how effective that can be. Um, but that's it sort of comes with the territory. You move at a different pace. You, you try to, I always try to move at the speed of trust. Um, but sometimes the systems that are in place on a business board where everybody speaks the same language drive the trust faster than the sort of relationship-based trust that you need to cultivate in a nonprofit board. Um, so it's, it's, it's hard work, but it's really redeeming work because it, uh, it offers you know, incredible experiences and support for people. Have you ever experienced on a nonprofit board people just um, not taking it too seriously? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always felt like if you're going to take the seat on a nonprofit board, you should think of it as a part-time job, right? Yeah, that's, right. that's how it should be perceived. I sat on a nonprofit board some years ago, and I'm like, I'll never do this again. Right? Because there are people that just, I'm like, why are you even here? You know, so you could say you're on the board. Yeah, and I think a, a well-run board that it, it's probably the chair, or in our case, the co-chair, that has to manage that. Right, and has to be in the conversations about you know you've done great work here, and it's time to you know make space for somebody else who has more capacity and more energy to bring the right skill sets that we need at any given point of time. Um, and and sometimes it's the chair or the co-chair that's sort of overstayed their welcome. Um, our particular board has no term limits, so we're all are on the board for three-year terms. Um, but because yeah. it's a complicated board and because it's out of town, we and because when you get great people on the board, you don't want to turn them over just because some number of terms has passed by. So we don't have term right. limits. Right, yeah. Um, but that mm-hmm. makes the conversation challenging as well. Like when is the right time for somebody to step away given that there's no restriction on them stepping away? So on the three-year cycle, you need to have conversations with everybody to make sure that this is the right thing for you, is it the right thing for the organization, mm-hmm. uh, and help, help people decide when it is time to step away. Finally, about this, you're uh, an entrepreneur in residence for about five years. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that was a great experience. It's really super. So there's a um, university in Vancouver called Simon Fraser, and it's... Um, a really innovative, really community-engaged university. It's a big university, has a lot of schools, um, but it's very, very community-engaged. One of the um, one part of the university is called Radius, and Radius is sort of a social venture accelerator and a social innovation mm. lab. Uh, so really community-engaged. And I was an entrepreneur in residence there. So as part of Simon Fraser, it was kind of housed in the business school, but it was really community-focused. And over five years, supported somewhere close to 80 entrepreneurs that were trying to scale active businesses. Um, we had one program that was supporting people that had an idea for the business and were trying to turn it into a thing. And then we had others who already had the thing and were trying to figure out how to grow it. Um, and it was just fantastic. I worked in partnership with um, another entrepreneur that I really respect and, and I consider him a good friend. 
and the two of us have complementary expertise. I'm more on sort of the marketing and culture side. He's more on the finance and operations side. So we were able to sort of tag team. And I was responsible for half the cohort and he was responsible for half. But it, it was, if one of my group really needed his finance expertise, we would just make sure that we were both in a meeting together. Uh, and we helped accelerate some pretty great businesses. Some of them um, got, got well-financed. Some of them totally pivoted and went into different scopes of work. Um, but our, our mission with that, and we, we talked about it a lot, was you know, early stage enterprises are, are high risk by definition. Um, so our intention was that each of these social entrepreneurs 10 years from now would still be a social entrepreneur, whether the enterprise succeeded or not. So we wanted to make the experience of social entrepreneurship so good that it sort of held people into their careers um, as mm-hmm. part of our sort of change ambition. Um, and I, you know, if I think now back through a few of the people that we supported, um, I know I'm going to see one of them next week at a conference, and she's still a social entrepreneur. And I've run into a few others over the, over the summer, and they're still social entrepreneurs. And only some of them are running the same businesses. So it's pretty great. Nice. So how do you spend your time when you're not working? Well, on the other side of my computer screen here is the great outdoors. Our house backs up against the forest, and I get to spend a lot of my time mountain biking up there. Um, nice. And I ski a lot, um, hence the skiing metaphors. Uh, and I hear that my yes. son just got home, so he keeps me busy. He's 22. Our daughter is 19. She's just moved back to university. Uh, so we've got a pretty busy home life and a lot of sports activities. Um, and I, uh, it, it's not unusual to find me with my nose in a book. I go through 60 or 70 of them a year. Oof. Yeah. <laughs> Holy smokes. That's impressive. I wish I could read that many books. I just can't. I just, I can't. So is there anything that I missed asking you today? Anything that you want to talk about before we finish up? No, it's been a lovely conversation. I'm kind of curious to hear from you when you're in these conversations. What are the sort of uh, uh, talent challenges that you're hearing these days in these this sort of this period of time where we seem to be flirting with a recession, but not quite diving into it? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> More questions. Yeah, than you know, it's funny. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I, I had a conversation with uh, a buddy of mine. I've known him my whole career sure. yesterday. And he happened to use the over his skis metaphor, which oh, is funny nice. that you mentioned that. Yeah. And, um, you know, he works for a large tech firm. Um, he's kind of hoping he'll get a package because he wants to go out and do something else. And that'll make his life easier to do that. But, um, you know, when I asked, I said, you know, I mean, I hold stock in this particular company. And, I, I said, I mean, are, are they have He goes, no, everything's great. Stock's great. You know, things are great. They're just, you know, they come, like companies want to put their money somewhere else. Uh, who knows if they'll have major layoffs, minor layoffs, you know, just one or two layoffs. Um, you know, the Fed here in the United States did not raise rates today. Right. They said they still might between now and the end of the year, which is kind of getting ridiculous already. Um, it's a hard question to answer. I think that I have not experienced anybody saying, Oh, we shouldn't be hiring because we're afraid. Mm. Um, you know, business has to continue or else the entire economy will come to a screeching halt. and That'll be a bigger problem. And I think that, you know, the perpetual problem around talent is things like, you know, turnover, 
um, why people are being turned over and, you know, how do you find people? Yeah. And that's a much longer conversation than we have time for right. here. Um, cause it, it really depends on many factors. Yeah. Right. You know, I mean, do they have anybody doing their recruiting that really even knows what it is to be a recruiter? Right. Yeah. I had a conversation with somebody recently who's, I think, just about as experienced as I am. And he said he still does search. He, he has a search firm with a buddy of his. And he said, um, he said, yeah, it never ceases to amaze me. You look at somebody's profile and they're called a senior recruiter and they have three years experience. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like an oxymoron. Yeah. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. with that. <laughs> well, I hear some optimism in your, in your answer, right? So companies aren't yeah. panicking and they're not frightened of making the right hires. Um, they're probably being pretty methodical and making careful, making sure that we're having the right I think hires. more often what, what will happen is somebody will replace the CEO. Right. And then that CEO will make a lot of changes. And that, you know, in the long run, you know, I had somebody say to me recently, oh yeah, I just took over the job and, you know, fired a bunch of people and rehired a bunch of people. And, you know, we're, we're really working on a lot of that. And I'm like, well, good for you. That's great. Really. But the reality is, you know, let's look at it one or two years down the road and see if it really made a difference. Right. Yeah. Right. Sometimes it will, sometimes it won't. It just depends on who they bring in to, to run the company. Yeah. So anyway, with that, Mike Rollins, president and CEO of Junction. It's been a great conversation. I appreciate you spending time with me today. And it has indeed. Thanks so much for hosting. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.